0: Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Trinity. It's really good to be with you this morning. My name is Matthew. I'm the parish pastor here on the east side. And um, thank you for joining us this morning. I'm going to begin by reading a a text to us from Matthew chapter 23. And then we'll pray and and, and jump into our sermon. And then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it, but do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to have people call them rabbi, but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all students and call no one your father on earth for you have one father, the one in heaven, nor are you to be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Messiah, the greatest among you will be your servant. And all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Jesus, we um, thank you for the reminder today um, of your greatness. God, we thank you that you are great and lord we we along with with the song that we just sang, we ask Father that We would praise the Lord, oh my soul, that our whole selves, as we looked at last week, our whole selves would be moving towards you in this time. We ask God that we would be um, willing participants in your invitation to kingdom life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want to begin this morning um, in this study. We've been talking about citizenship Citizens of God's Kingdom, we've been talking about it now for months and months. And, and I want to just acknowledge the fact that, this, um, that we're two days away from a very big moment in our country. It is election week, of course, and Tuesday will be election day. And I know that some of us are probably tempted um, to spiritualize this week and to say that really what happens at the end of the day this week, it doesn't really matter. And in the sense, like, that's true. Like it doesn't really matter. Um, the kingdom of God is an everlasting kingdoms and the kingdoms of this world are a small blip on the timeline. They, they are, they're a drop in the bucket. It's, uh, they're, they're footnotes in the history of God's story. And so I think it's important to just say like what happens on Tuesday is, ult- is not ultimate. It's not the most important thing. Nothing truly ultimate is at risk. This week, And yet, one of the things that I've come to realize this year in particular is that my ability to simply um, unplug from a thing, to spiritualize it, to wrap it in transcendence, uh, to minimize or ignore the immediate consequences of something, that is actually a sign of my privilege in this world. That I might actually be insulated enough from political consequences. Uh, that really, the most I have at stake on Tuesday is some of the emotional side effects of it, or how it might affect some of my relationships. Uh, but I don't actually personally have anything at stake. In that sense, there is a um, like, there's a Teflonness to many of us. I think, like things can just roll off of us. And we can work, we can walk through a a thing like an election unscathed, regardless of the outcome. Uh, But there are many in our city, there are many of our neighbors for whom that is not true, Um, for whom the outcomes of elections are real. And that is because they live on the razor's edge between a sustainable and an unsustainable life. And they look at those who are in power to do what power is given to do. By God, that is to serve the interests and good of the people to protect from evil and to provide justice. And they look to those in power to do those things for them. And when those in power are not doing those things, they experience it personally, as personal as someone coming into your home and upsetting your world. And here's why I'm saying all this uh, to you um, loved ones Tuesday's election uh, does not determine anyone's ultimate future. Thanks be to God. Our sure and certain hope our sure and certain future. um, We believe as Christians is in the eternal reign of peace of Christ and his kingdom. That's that is the ultimate end. Um, And yet um, the ultimate, the consequences of elections for many people are real and not illusory. And I actually think, and I just kind of want to give you this as a framework. I actually think it's incredibly Christian to be so grounded in hope that something can happen that isn't what you wish it would happen and not move into despair. To be so grounded in a hope that is larger than immediate circumstances that you're able to let things disappoint you without falling into despair. And yet being so grounded or so tied into the outcomes, the, uh, so, so connected, uh, bound up in the fortunes of your neighbor that you can despair with them. And I think that that's a really good, like we said last week, uh, the, the great commandment for you and me this week is love of neighbor. That's what this is about. So how do I, this week, regardless of what happens, and who knows what happens, regardless of what happens, how do I choose to love my neighbor as myself? As I already mentioned last week, but I, again, encourage it to you, if you haven't listened to it yet, October 21st, Church Politics Podcast, Justin Gibbany gives us, I think, some helpful language on thinking how do Christians respond to an election um, but the great commandment for you and me this week is none other than love. To choose those who live among us and to be for them. And and I just want to say, like, that is not something that happens in one direction politically. That is something that happens in all directions politically. So just so there's no misreading me. Now, I want to jump into the text. Um, we've been spending a lot of time with Pharisees. You probably feel like you're in Sunday school in some Way, because we talk about all these people that don't mean anything to any of us. And today we're gonna to talk about Pharisees and about scribes. And I'll just say this about them. Uh, scribes, were the, um, they were the theological scholars of their day. They were the teachers and scholars. And then the Pharisees were the teachers and the practitioners of Torah. And so they were the spiritual giants. They were the scrupulous, conservative, uh, fundamentalists, honestly, uh, of, the, of their day. And Jesus in chapter 23 uh, of, of Matthew's gospel unloads on them. He unloads on them in a way that is truly surprising. If you've never read it before, he is not telling stories anymore about farms and about wedding banquets. He is telling them exactly what he thinks. It is Jesus unfiltered, unedited, unparabolized. And it's kind of refreshing. He has just days, hours left until he's going to be on a cross and he is using his last encounter with these people to tell them exactly what he thinks. Now, we only read the first 12 verses. You really need to go and read the whole chapter this week because the whole chapter is so important in understanding what is going on here because Jesus at the beginning is looking at his disciples. He's looking at the people who are listening. He's saying, do not do what they do because they are saying the right things but doing the wrong things. Their lives are hypocritical in that sense. They're disintegrated. So do not follow their example, but do follow their teaching. And then in verse 13, which was not where we read, he turns and looks at them. He says, and woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, and He begins to tell them what it is about their life that is broken. And this is what he is saying. What is Jesus mad about? Well, he's mad about the word that shows up again and again is hypocrisy. And we need to, you know, you may not know this, but hypocrisy comes from the Greek and it is actually the word for actors. So a a hypocrite is an actor. Now, actors are not bad people. We have a lot of actors in our church and we're very glad you're here. But what an actor in a relationship or an actor in reality, a person who cannot be trusted, a person whose life is ultimately artificial, a person who lives behind a mask, that is not a good thing. And Jesus, when he calls them hypocrites, he's not saying thespians. He's saying, you who live your life behind a mask. You who have a disintegrated life, a life that is externally one way, but internally another way altogether. Now, what in specific is he upset about? Well, we looked at a, We saw a couple of these in our verse, but I'm just going to pull from the later verses as well. First of all, he says that they live only to be seen. So if no one is looking, then something good is not worth doing. What am I doing when no one's looking? What's my life like in the shadows? Their entire faith is actually a play for an audience. And if there's no audience, they're just not interested in doing it. Second, he says, they lay heavy burdens on those that they are teaching and influencing. Remember, these guys were essentially, they were pastors. They're laying heavy loads on people of of Torah observance, but they themselves are not doing the work except when they get immediate acclaim for it because they're doing it publicly. They're telling people, this is what your life needs to be like. And then they, when they go home, they're completely different people. They say that they are devoted to God first, but in fact, they are devoted to the trappings of God. There's this really interesting section later on where he says, you, um, you, you swear by the gold in the temple and not by the temple itself, which he's like, you foolish person. Don't you understand that what is in the temple that is of greater value than the gold is God. The temple is the dwelling place of God. And you actually think the most important thing in the temple, the greatest thing you could swear by, in other words. The greatest thing is the gold in the temple. He's like, no, the greatest thing is God. You, I, you've missed the plot. You say you're devoted to God, but in fact, you're devoted to the trappings of God. In their life, they model for their disciples a life that is artificial. He says, you cross sea and land to make disciples. And when you do, you make them twice a son, twice a daughter of hell because you're teaching them how to live this disintegrated, dualistic, broken life. Now, I said last week that Jesus's willingness to speak truth to power is something that every single one of us needs to be willing to take into our our own lives. And yet we need to understand that Jesus's confrontation in here is not motivated by disdain. It is not motivated by disdain. He does not hate these people. He is very angry with them, but he loves these people. He came to save these people. And in fact, even in this moment where he is just laying it out, he is still for them. And here's how I know it's true. If you read chapter 23 this week, you will see that Jesus charges them with something and then tells them what to do to fix it. He's still trying to help them. He's, he's, he's giving them everything that they're doing wrong. And then in the, in the backside of that is saying, what you should be doing is this. What you should be thinking about is this. What you should care about is this. You've missed it, but this is what you could be doing I think it's important as you read a passage like this to, to, to realize what is in my imagination going on in the face of Jesus in this moment. The reason why that's so important is because it tells us so much about what we think God is like. What do I think Jesus is like? And if you can read chapter 23 all the way through and imagine Jesus, Jesus being both furiously angry and also deeply moved because of his love, I think you're, I think you're in the right ballpark of what God is like towards sin how God views hypocrisy in the Pharisees. Now, it's easy at this point to, to, to read this and to step back and say, boy, what a, what a terrible, thank God I'm not a Pharisee. What a terrible day to be a Pharisee. Thank God none of us are those anymore. And I, I want to remind you of something. Pharisees did not know that they were Pharisees. And I don't mean that they didn't, they, of course they understood they were actually Pharisees. But what we understand Pharisees as well, we, they, didn't act, they didn't know it either. In other words, the things that Jesus is charging these people with is something that they, were, they weren't aware of their hypocrisy to the degree that Jesus is able to see it which is just simply an invitation for you and me to, to put ourselves inside the text and not try to be too self-righteous and not try to remove ourselves. This is not a text about what do you and I do with the Pharisees in our life? How do you engage Pharisees on social media? How should you engage Pharisees around your Thanksgiving table this year? That's not what this text is about. This text is about how am I a Pharisee? How is this about me? How is Jesus coming in with fury and tears in his eyes, looking at me and saying a thing to me? Because this is a text about Jesus caring enough about people to say the hard thing. So I have a series of questions that I, for me come out of this text. And there's more than this, but here's some, and they're on the screen for you. How am I, Jesus calls them blind guides. How am I blind? And yet I think I'm the seeing one. So in what ways, uh, in what ways am I so indoctrinated in my way of thinking that I don't realize that I'm actually the one who's I'm actually the one who's not seen reality here. Second question: How, in what ways am I clean? on the outside, but actually full of rottenness. He calls them whitewashed tombs. You may have heard this before. He says, you're whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you're bright and white, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones and filthiness. He's like, in what ways is my external appearance actually far different from what is going on inside of me? In what ways is my external life project a sort of like well-ordered, devoted to God, holiness, and internally, there's actually nothing but corruption and selfishness and using God and manipulating people to get what I want out of life? In which ways are there, is there dissonance and disagreement and disintegration between what I project and what is actually true? Do I spend more time in my life curating an image or an impression of myself than I do to tending to my inner life? That's just like a, you know, it doesn't have to be a, a comparison minute to minute, but just think about like how much energy, how much energy, emotional Mental energy do you and I give towards projection of an image versus towards our inner life? Like, and what's really more important? Thirdly, how am I an oppressor? These people were using the power and the privilege they've been giving, they've been using it to lay burdens on people, not to lift them, but to. I've said this before, but I think it's important to say again, if you and I, for example, this is just one example. If you and I do not know the source of the clothes we're wearing and the food we're eating, there is a very good chance that that came to us in the West through oppression. It's how the supply chain works. If you and I don't know who's making our clothes, then there's a very good chance that those clothes were made by oppressive forces on poor countries in the far East. And that's actually what is propping up our lifestyle right now. In what ways am I a, per- a perpetrator of oppression? I may not even recognize it. it. It doesn't have to be something where I go and I just ruin someone's life for them and say, ha ha, I've oppressed another person. It can be things like that are so subtle. I haven't even figured out that there's a, di- there's a connection between what I do and buy and who I am and, and how it affects other people. Fourthly, how am I observant of the rituals of Christianity, but I'm not a practitioner of justice? This is one of the things Jesus says. He's like, you tithe dill and mint and cumin. You're scrupulous. You follow the the narrowest letter of the law, but you've lost the spirit of it. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I don't, it it doesn't mean that much to me that you've gone through your, your dill plant and picked one out of every 10 leaves. It doesn't mean anything. I want you to be a person who embodies justice and mercy and peace. Fifthly, in what ways is my life making it harder for friends or neighbors to believe in Jesus rather than easier? And then finally, how am I a hoarder of the good that I have at the expense of others? Not merely financial good, but my relational good. How am I actually hoarding the good things in my life at the expense of other people? And the reason that Jesus wants you and me to ask those questions is not because he has disdain for us disdain leads to indifference if jesus had disdain for us he wouldn't say anything he asks these questions of you and me because he loves us he is not apathetic but he is aggressively moving towards us because he loves us Purgation is not punitive in God's kingdom. It is healing. In fact, at the very end of chapter 23, after Jesus has said all these things to the scribes and Pharisees, both to his disciples and then to them directly, after he said all these things, he says these words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And that's, a, that's an idiomatic Hebrew usage. The double naming is always a sign in the Bible of great affection and great sorrow. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus says, how often I have desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. He presents himself at the end of this, this, this series of charges as a mother hen who only wants to take Jerusalem, who is led by these religious people to take Jerusalem and put them under his wings and shield them from the world, to keep them safe, to love them. And I just want to say, if you ever wonder what God wants for you right now, that's it. He's not interested chiefly in putting you in your place. He's not trying to get you to fall in line. He wants to bring you under his wings. Jesus presents himself as a mother hen who is here to preserve and protect and save and shield those of us who actually need that kind of protection from the outside world. Who were the people who flocked to Jesus in his ministry? It was not the scribes and the Pharisees. It was, it was not the Sadducees. It was prostitutes. It was outcasts. It was lepers. It was social traitors. It was people on the margins and fringes of society. Why? Because they got it. They're like, I need a mother hen. I don't need another rule. I don't need another principle. I need someone to guard me and keep me and shield me. I'm too vulnerable. I, I can't take care of myself. I'm not a big strong rooster. I'm a helpless baby hen and I need, I need protection. And I just want to tell you this in closing. Um, you are right now exactly where you need to be to respond to that. You are right where you need to be to listen to that voice of invitation and believe that what God wants most for you right now is to be safe under his feathers. The rebuke that comes to us from Jesus in this is meant to persuade us out of our faulty plans, our self sufficiency. And Jesus, thanks be to God, Jesus did not stop fighting for the Pharisees. And he doesn't stop fighting for us either. Jesus carried a cross for the Pharisees. Jesus prayed for the Pharisees as they were mocking him while he was being crucified because of them. Jesus does not give up fighting for you. He did not give up fighting for them. And he says at the end of our text that we read that everyone who exalts himself is going to be humbled. But for those of us who are willing to humble ourselves, we will be exalted. And wouldn't you rather have that? wouldn't you choose to humble yourself to let the hard word of God over our life and heart come to us with all the edge, but to know that it is motivated by love for our good and to humble ourselves so that God can be the one who in due time will lift us up. Let's pray together. um, And then we'll pray the Lord's prayer. Jesus, we, we thank you that you are the one who never stops fighting and we also thank you that you are the one who's never lost a battle. And so we pray that you would overcome us with your love. Jesus, we, we pray for, for ruthless honesty. We ask that we would be open to your rebuke so that we could then receive your embrace. God, we pray that we would have the courage to crawl towards your wings and to finally feel safe. Let's pray these words together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Grace and peace to you. You are loved. We'll see you in a few minutes at worship.